If you haven't been with us, if you are a first-timer here, we welcome you to Peninsula Grace. This is a place where we want to present everyone complete in Christ. That's our goal. That's what we believe our biblical mandate is. And we have, this last year, been walking through this story of the Bible. It started in Genesis and just seeing how this story fits together, how the story of the Bible is actually telling one story about sinful man and a holy God and the Jesus that brought the two together. And we've been looking the last few weeks. We've got to the life of Christ. We saw Jesus' birth. We saw his boyhood last week. And this week, we're going to be looking at his baptism. And uh, before we get to where we are today, we have to get to how we got there. And so you remember, this is our time. This is our how we remember the major part to the storyline in his story. So we're up to Jesus now, and let's see if we can remember. You go from the top, come with me. We got God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, judges, kingdom, divided, exile, return, and Jesus. There we go. Excellent work. Um, this is, today we're going to see, is a huge moment in our story. Jesus' baptism. And it's so huge that all four of the Gospels are going to cover it. John 1 doesn't actually talk about the baptism itself, but it records uh, the events that happened at the baptism. And this is a huge turning point. This is the first public act in Jesus' ministry. And if you remember last week, we saw him when he was 12, where now we're fast-forwarding. 18 years later, Luke 3 says he was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Jesus is 30 years old. So you imagine waiting for 30 years for your first job to start, right? And and, and this makes me feel better about myself because I got my first full-time job when I was 32. So I'm just a little behind Jesus, right? I got my first house last week as a 33-year-old. So what I thought was just delayed adolescence or laziness turns out WWJD, right? I'm just <laughs> following Jesus. So if you don't like my life, you take it up with the Savior, okay? So, um, we, but you imagine the, 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 the submission, the, the humble patience of Jesus to wait for 30 years to launch into what he's been called to do by the Father is incredible. And last week we saw as a 12-year-old, here's the pictures that I told you I hate. Here's, I had no idea that at 12 years old, Jesus was a ginger Jew. I didn't know that. <laughs> I had always learning. That's why you're here. But Jesus, at the age of 12, he's in the temple, and he shows this real understanding of who his, of his true heavenly Father is and the mission that the Father had sent the Son to accomplish. And this week, we're going to see Jesus go public with that mission. That's right. You are all invited to Jesus' coming out party. All right? Boots and pants and boots and pants and pants. Am I the only? Okay, that's fine. Um, I'm used to that. This is Jesus's, this is his, his coronation. This is going to be the time, kind of a grand opening where he's launching his ministry that will eventually lead to his death and his resurrection. This is the coronation of a king. But it's not going to be like what you would typically see with all the pomp and circumstance. This is not how like when we inaugurate the president or we put the crown on a king. And just like his birth, we're going to see that it's humble and to many it's offensive. We're going to talk about this. The context is, is baptism. We have John the Baptist doing some baptizing. So we need to talk for a second about what baptism is. Essentially, baptism has to do with identity. About, about who you are. 
Uh, when I was a kid, we were sitting around the dinner table, and I had been watching this show called Extreme Close-Up. And I'm sitting there at our spaghetti dinner, because we're a good Italian family, and I'm, for whatever reason, I'm ADD and I'm nine, I don't know, I'm going into my, near my plate of spaghetti, I'm going, extreme close-up, extreme close-up. And my dad, who is typically so kind, so meek and mild-mannered, he goes, Justin, do that again. Yes, Dad. Extreme close, bam! <laughs> Baptizes me into the plate of spaghetti. The word baptism means to place into, okay? I was placed into pasta, right? That's, what, that's all the word means is to, when you baptize someone, you're placing them in to something else. In this case, it was ragu, and many times it's in some water. But, but was it homemade? Yeah, right, Mom. All right. <laughs> the word baptized means to place into, but ultimately it's an identity issue, okay? And, and so what this actually came from is the wild, wild world of the Greek textile industry. How exciting is that? So what would happen is they would take this cloth and they would place it into this huge vat of dye. They would baptize the cloth into the dye. And now this cloth would become identified with the color of that dye. So this shirt, you would say, this is my gray shirt. This shirt now has taken on the identity of the color that it was placed into. And so when John the Baptist is baptizing, when he's placing the people of Israel into the water, he's identifying, they are identifying themselves with the message that he's preaching. So the question is, what's the message that John the Baptist was preaching? Well, in John, or Luke 3.3, 3, it tells us. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that the people should be baptized to show, to identify with the fact that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. So these people are being baptized. They're identifying with, God, with John's message. They're saying, I need to change. I need saved from my sin. Now we have to understand the context here. Because in John the Baptist's time, up until he had been baptizing, baptism had one purpose among the Jewish people. And that was to convert a Gentile, meaning a non-Jew, to convert them to become a Jewish person, to step into the Jewish faith. And this was, the, this was actually step three of a three-step process where they would sacrifice sin. They would sac- make sacrifices uh, for their sins, as we see in the Old Testament law. The males would be circumcised, okay? So this is how you know this wasn't just church shopping, okay? This was not a light commitment. If you're getting circumcised, you're saying, I'm in, right? I'm all the way in. And then they would be baptized to show this public declaration. I identify with the Jewish faith, with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And after that process, the Gentiles were now identified as a Jew, physically, spiritually, and every single one of God's promises to the Jewish people would now apply to them. But this is the problem. For the Jew, for them to be told that they needed to be baptized? You know how offensive that would be to them? You know how much that would shock them? How much that would anger them? 
They go, I don't need to be baptized. I'm already in. Right? I'm already a Jew. Since I was eight days old, I've been circumcised. I don't need to convert to that which I already am. And for John to tell them, you need to be baptized, would have been more offensive than we could ever imagine. And what he's implying is if you don't repent, if you don't put your eyes on Jesus, then all those promises that God made to the Jewish people will not be applied to you. And they're saying, well, I'm already a Jew. I should be good. And to which that, John says this. He says, prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. He says, you cannot rely on your family tree. This must be a heart change. And this would be individual repentance. It was not based on their nationality. It was based on their own individual repentance. And and you see, the real children of Abraham, he would point out, are those who have faith in Jesus, not just those who have been circumcised outwardly. And we see this, that that, uh, Paul said this in Galatians 3. He said, Abraham, go all the way back to the first Jew. He said, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He does not say God counted him right because of his Jewishness. Because that wasn't even a thing yet. Abraham was the first Jew. The reason God considered him right in his sight was because Abraham believed in God and believed in the deliverer that he was promising to send him. God did not count Abraham righteous because he was a Jew. And this would shake the Israelites to their core to be told that they need to be baptized. In other words, John's saying this, do not rely on your Jewishness for salvation. Rely wholly on the mercies of God to forgive those who have confessed their sins and admitted their need for a Savior. And so to this, Uh, Paul says the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. He says it's not about circumcision. It's about do you believe like your father Abraham believed? Those are the people that the promises will apply to. And then he goes on back in, in our story here. John says to him, don't just say to each other, we're safe for we are descendants of Israel. Okay, now, now understand, God had made promises to the people of Israel. He had promised them, I'm going to bless. Remember what he said to Abraham? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your socks off. And in fact, I'm going to bless all nations through you. The deliverer is coming through the line of the Jewish people. He says, I'm going to establish you as an eternal kingdom. There will be a king that will come and he'll reign over you forever and ever. There's all these wonderful promises that are coming to the the Jews. But he says, any individual can be cut off from those promises if they don't repent they don't believe. And and they might say, well, you've got to bless somebody, right? You've made these promises. So if none of us repent, who are you going to to bless? Who are you going to keep your promises to? This is what John says. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. He goes, look, if none of you repent, God will put a yarmulke on a rock and bless that. He goes, I, I, don't, I don't need you, right? 
I can, God probably wasn't that sassy, but he said, I don't need any one of you. I will keep my promises based on my faithfulness, not yours. Jewishness has never guaranteed anyone salvation, just like non-Jewishness has never guaranteed anyone hell. There is room at the table for everyone, but only those who will repent and receive their forgiveness of sins. And it's in the middle of this baptism, this controversy, that Jesus, our main character, the protagonist, arrives on the scene. Matthew 3, it says, Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Now, what we're about to see here is probably the most explicit scene of what we call uh, the doctrine of the Trinity that we see in all of Scripture. Trinity simply means this, that there is one true God, and that's super important. There's one God and only one, but within that one God, there is three persons. A little, a little graph that's, that's helped, graphic that's helped me is this. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, each of them is God, and yet the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, and, and, the, and the Spirit is not the Father. They are three distinct persons, and yet they are one God. It's a mystery that our little human brains could never comprehend. And what we see here is all three of these people of God on the scene in this one beautiful moment at Jesus' baptism. We're going to see Jesus being baptized. We're going to see the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to see God speak from heaven. So let's work through these. Baptism of the Son. Now we have to ask this question. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? You think about this? What's John's message? Come and be baptized. Why? To repent of your sins. This baptism was for sinners. Sinners who needed a savior. Now we established last week that Jesus has never sinned. That he's never done anything wrong. So why does Jesus need to be baptized? Not only is he not a sinner, he's the savior that's come for these sinners. So why does Jesus need to be baptized? And and John has the same concern I do. Look at the next verse in Matthew 3. John tried to talk him out of it. Jesus, whoa, 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 what are you doing? I, he says, am the one who needs to be baptized by you. So why are you coming to me? John has said, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. He should be the one baptizing me, not the other way around. To which Jesus responds, it should be done. For we must carry out all that God requires. Or the way the ESV says it, to fulfill all righteousness. And apparently... This answer was suffice because John agrees to baptize him. So what's Jesus saying here? Why why did Jesus need to be baptized if a baptism was supposed to be for a sinner? Well, I see three things in the text. The first one is it's a matter of obedience. You see, Jesus was, was simply obeying. Jesus came to earth as a man, and not just as a man, as a Jewish man. And as a Jewish man, he would do everything that was required of, of Jewish men. And one of the requirements was to be baptized by John. Now, Jesus had one very simple motto in his life, and it echoes that of my favorite shoe company. Oops, there's the, that was, that's not, that's not Nike's motto. There it is. Just do it. He said, if if God said it, I'll do it. And if God said, don't do it, then I, I don't do it. For 33 years, he lives by this simple motto of whatever God says, I'll do. It shows trust and obedience in the Father. And ultimately, Jesus got baptized because he was being obedient to his Father. 
God told Israel to be baptized by John, so Jesus got baptized by John. He is the only person who's ever walked the earth and was completely, consistently, every second of the day, every moment of his life, submissively and trustingly obedient to his Father. Anybody else here in this room obeyed God every second of your life? Mm, Crickets, right? I mean, I think my record right now is like 12 minutes, and I was asleep. (laughs) (laughs) To be perfect would mean trust and obey God at all times, and none of us do that. And in this baptism, Jesus is affirming that he would turn from sin at all times, and that he would at all times obey his Father. And this is where it gets good, because Jesus, see, Jesus had to be good and obedient for me because of my complete and utter inability to do good and to obey my Father. And then this is the beauty, this is the beauty of the gospel, that on the cross, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived my life. God treated Jesus as if he had done the things that I had done, as if he had lusted the way I've lusted, that he had disobeyed the way I disobeyed, that he was afraid the way that I was afraid. And as he hung on the cross, he was treated by God as if he had lived my life. And you know what then in turn I get? God treats me as if I lived Jesus' life. He treats me as though I had been perfectly obedient every second of my life. You think of it like a test. I took the test in the way I lived my life, and I got an F. Not even an F, I got an F minus. Incomplete, right? I mean, it's just it's a mess. Jesus, he lived life here on earth. He gets a 5.0. Perfect score. And the beautiful news is that when God looks at my name in the book of life, it's going to say, Justin Blake Frankino, colon, lived a perfect life. A plus. This is the doctrine of imputation, that, that God put Jesus' perfection on my account, and he put my badness on Jesus' account. So Jesus' act of being baptized was just one of a countless series of obediences before his God. But still you say, or I guess I say, you say that I say, you see what I'm saying? It, wasn't his baptism for sinners? Like, yes, I know that, that every Jewish sinner was required to be baptized, but Jesus was perfect. Wouldn't he be the one that was exempt from this baptism? And this goes from our second, second reason for Jesus being baptized. The first one is obedience, but the second one is identity. Remember we said baptism is about identity. The, the cloth is identified with the blue dye. The, the, the Gentile convert is being identified as a Jew. And what's going on here? It's so beautiful. Isaiah 53 Remember the prophecy about the suffering servant, about Jesus to come. And Isaiah says this word at the end of this beautiful chapter. He says, he, Jesus, the coming deliverer, was counted among the rebels. The ESV says he was numbered with the transgressors. You know what that means? When God was counting the sinful people on earth, when he's tallying up the rebels, he says, Jesus came to be counted with them. Think about that. Jesus came to this earth 
to be identified with sinners. <laughs> it's so beautiful. And he saw himself as one with sinful men and women. His first public act was the sinless God coming to earth to be identified with the dirty, the disgusting, the broken, the sinful. And you say, yes, yes, he had no business. He had no business being baptized in the water with all of those filthy sinners. Absolutely. He had no business being baptized with sinners, just like he had no business being hung on the cross. That should have been me. But in order to bring sinners to a right standing before God, he had to identify with us. You see, the symbol of baptism is this idea of being placed into the water. It's an idea of death. And then being brought back out of the water is a symbol of life. And there's this beautiful scene going on here in Jesus' first public act of ministry that says, I must die and then be raised back to life. So that one day you and I could identify with that death and resurrection. He died the death so that I never had to die. And he was raised to a new life so that I could live with him forever. See, there's only one way Jesus could accomplish this task of seeking and saving the lost. And it wasn't through preaching awesome sermons, which he did. It wasn't through living a a perfect life of example alone, which, which he did. But it was by dying in the place of sinners. And he was well aware of this at the moment in the Jordan River. So it's obedience, it's identity, and then finally it's confirmation. And we'll look at this more in a minute, but hear this voice from heaven after he comes out of the water. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We see this confirmation from God the Father that this indeed is the Messiah, the chosen one. The one who's come to save the world of its sins. Jesus was baptized to be confirmed by God that this was the promised Messiah. And the next work we see is the Holy Spirit, the next person of the Trinity. Now what happens here in verse 16, it says, After his baptism, when he came back up out of the waters, Jesus came out of the water, I guess I said that, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God. Here's the Holy Spirit, next person of the Trinity, descending like a dove, and settling on him. This beautiful picture. And and God had actually told John, before this event ever took place, he said, this is going to be what happens, and this is how you're going to know who the coming Savior is. Look at John 1. I didn't know, John the Baptist speaking, I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, the coming Savior. And he says, I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify, I witness that he is the chosen one of God. God called a shot. He said, this guy's going to be baptized, and the Spirit's going to come and descend on him, and that's how you know who the Holy One will be, who the coming Deliverer will be. And John's able to identify him. Now, this is interesting, because John is Jesus' cousin, right? We talked about that in Luke chapter 1. They're cousins. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm actually really good at identifying my cousins, right? It's like awesome at it. Like, yep, there's Andrew. That's my cousin. Yep, that's Sarah. That's my cousin. No, that person is not my cousin, 
right? I'm just so good at it. So good at identifying my cousins. And I don't know here, Scripture never says whether or not John and Jesus had interacted. Remember, they saw each other when they were in utero. John's doing backflips in Elizabeth. That's the last time we know, scripturally, that they had seen each other. I don't know if they had family vacations together, if they did holidays together. It's possible that he's never seen him, and therefore he wouldn't recognize him physically. But it's also possible that he knew who he was, but this was to confirm that he was the coming Son of God. Because I can identify my cousins, but I'm going to be a lot slower to say, yes, my cousin is God, right? And so here's John the Baptist being told, you know how your cousin Jesus is God? The Spirit will descend on him. Now you might say, why did they choose a dove? And, and we're not told. And by the way, you saw it said like a dove, not an actual dove. And there's a lot of reasons. We know a dove symbolizes peace. The dove came to Noah after the flood. There could be a lot of symbolism here. But one thing I just want to throw out as a possibility The dove in the Jewish mind, they would first think about sacrifice. See, the dove was the most common sacrifice that could be given. If you were rich, okay, you're like upper class in the tax bracket, you would be sacrificing a bull. Now, you're bringing the whole cow, okay, because you can afford it. If you're middle class, like many of us, you would bring a lamb. If you were poor, if you could afford virtually nothing, you would bring a dove, The dove was like the Walmart version. It's like the great value brand of sacrifices. And it was like, this is what you, this is the lowest of the low. And I just, you know, I just think, man, this dove coming out could symbolize that Jesus came as a sacrifice for the poorest of the poor, for the dirtiest of the dirty, for the lowliest of the low, for the worst of all sinners. So why did the Spirit descend on him? A couple of symbols we see throughout Scripture when, when the Spirit descends on somebody is, number one, it's to anoint them for kingly service. You see this in the Old Testament with King David. You see through certain prophets and judges. The Spirit would descend on them. Sometimes they would anoint them with oil, some kind of a ritual, basically to say God is recognizing this person in their leadership and what they would do. And Jesus came as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, and the Spirit is saying this man is anointed to be that king. Second reason I see is to strengthen his humanity. Remember, Jesus came to earth as a human. Yes, he's God, but we said last week he emptied himself of some of those attributes in order to take on flesh and be like you and I. And so like you and I, Jesus would get tired. Jesus would get weary. He'd get thirsty. He'd get hungry. He'd get hangry, right? Jesus would get migraines. And the Spirit would come to give him strength to his weary body. We're actually going to see that next week. Drew's going to be preaching on the temptation of Jesus. He's going to be in the wilderness for 40 days. And the Spirit comes alongside as he's being tempted by the devil and he gives him strength. The Holy Spirit comes and he says, this is the king. This is the anointed one. And I will give him strength. Beautiful scene. Then finally, the word of the Father. The word of the Father. says, and behold, a voice from heaven said, pause. Think about this, what's about to happen I've never heard God's voice audibly. Can you imagine being there at the banks of the Jordan and hearing God speak? Like today, we'd all have our our phones out, right? Got to Snapchat this. We want to hear. What is is God? If God, God only speaks three times audibly in the life of Christ. So we've got to listen. We've got to pay attention. He's about to say something important. And this is what he says to his son. This is my beloved son with whom... I am well pleased. 
God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He's actually quoting Psalm 2. It was a prophecy. See, whenever a sacrifice was made in the Jewish culture, it had to be acceptable, right? It had to be the right kind of sacrifice for the right kind of sin or the right kind of occasion. It had to be the right age. It couldn't have any spot or blemish. And if it did not meet up to the qualifications, that sacrifice was rejected. And what God is saying here from heaven as Jesus comes out of the water, as he looks down and he says to his son, he says publicly for everyone to hear, this is my acceptable sacrifice. This is the perfect son of God. The one who identifies with sinners the dove of great sacrifice, and in him I am well pleased. This word well pleased, in the, in the Greek it meant to, to delight in. I love the way the New Living translates it. It's my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. He says, I've been examining my son for 30 years. I've been watching his every move. I've been listening to his every word, and I am proud of my boy. I'm doing backflips. I am delighting. I am singing in heaven over who my son is, the perfect and acceptable sacrifice for all of humanity. God is pleased and publicly declares Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. You remember John's job? He said, I came. I'm a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. John has been preparing the way through this baptism of repentance for Jesus. And now he's here. And John's going to pass the, bat, the uh, baton off to Jesus, who has been anointed by the Spirit, who has been verified by the Father. Now he's ready to do work. Three applications, and we'll be done. Number one, our heritage cannot save us. I'm going to brag for a second here. I come from good stock. All right? Here's my grandpa. This is a guy, Theodore Frankino. Went to Grace Theological Seminary. Christian among Christians, he was a great man. And then he had a son, Theodore Scott Frankino. Also went to theological seminary at Grace College. We say they put the theo in theological. <laughs> I say that, I don't think it's a we. And just like my grandpa had great taste in clothing, stripes, love stripes, Mustaches, high dollar glasses, and then Justin comes along, and they opt to not name him Theodore, I'm not bitter, so I didn't go to seminary like they did, oh wait, I shouldn't tell them a congregation that, but you, everything about them, their, their walk with Jesus, their training in, at, at the theological seminary, you know what all of that means for my personal salvation? Theologically speaking? <laughs> I can't rely on my parents' relationship with God any more than a Jewish man or woman could rely on their Jewishness. You see, salvation's an individual thing. It's between you and God. And it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter who your spouse is. And maybe you've been coming to church since you were somebody else was changing your diapers. But the reality is, while we're called into a community, we enter in one by one. And being born into a Christian family does not make you right with Jesus. 
And they, the saying goes, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. And the reality is, the question today before us is, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you repented of your sins? Have you fully surrendered to him as your Lord and Savior? Do you trust that you were not good and that he was good for you? That's the only way that we'll know our God and live with him forever. It's you, not your, not your parent, not your spouse, not your family, not your church body. It's you. Secondly, Jesus came to identify with sinners. This is so beautiful. Imagine this scene at the baptism of Jesus. This is the Holy One of God who lives in unapproachable light. He puts skin on, comes to this world, and the first public act is to line up with a group of sinners to be baptized. Standing right in front of him is the town drunk. Right behind him, the town prostitute. You've got the greedy. You've got the murderer in line. You've got the absentee father. You've got them all lined up, and there's Jesus standing right in line with them for this sinner's baptism. Why? Because these are the very people that he came to identify with. These are the very people that he came to save, to cleanse, to give life to. And here, listen to me, look at me. Jesus is not afraid of your filth. He's not. That's why he came. He came to slop around in the mud with us. We can't go to God. We don't first clean up our act and go to him. He initiated. He comes to us. And what Mark Bender said, it's so beautiful. He said, our hearts are the smelly manger. And it is there that Christ chooses to be born into our lives. Jesus came to us, and it was that willingness to stand in line, to identify with sinners, with stinky, filthy sinners that was a preview of his willingness to hang on the cross. Or it should have been me with the nail holes in my hands. I should have been the one whipped and beaten and mocked, but Jesus came to identify with me and to die for me so that I could live with him. And because he did that, the heavens opened to us. And God says, because of Jesus... Because of Jesus, in you I am well pleased. In you I delight. In you I'm doing backflips. In you I'm taking great joy because I'm looking at your account and I'm seeing Jesus' perfect scores. Last one. Baptism today. And identifying with Christ. We don't have time to get into all the baptism, of course, but today at 6 p.m. at the Diamond M Ranch, Corey James Smithwick. <laughs> I told him. I told him I was going to embarrass Thanks, Facebook. Going to be baptized, not into a McDonald's ice cream cone like on the, on the screen, but he will be baptized into the water to publicly identify with Jesus. You see, today as followers of, of Jesus, our baptism, it identifies us. Remember, baptism is about identity. It identifies us with Christ's death, with his burial, and with his resurrection. See, baptism is not more or less than that. Baptism doesn't save us. It does not wash us clean. It's an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. It's a public declaration of who we are in Jesus. And it's basically saying, like this guy, who probably not too easily confused with Corey, he's saying, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. I identify with him. I identify with his death. I identify with his life. And now I'm with Jesus. 
If he died, I died. I'm dead to my sins. If he rose from the dead, I've risen to a new life. And now he's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my everything. And I choose to identify with the one who chose to identify with me. Baptism does not save us, but we've been commanded by our chief to do it. And if you haven't been baptized, come talk to me. Come talk to me. We got room in the pool tonight, right, Corey? Let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came and he lived the life that I could never live. He was obedient to you every step of the way. We see this so clearly demonstrated in his baptism. And we see him here publicly declared as the chosen one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But he would not come on a throne like we'd picture. He had the crown of thorns and he got onto his throne, the cross, to die for us. God, thank you that Jesus publicly identified with me, the worst of all sinners. And now, Lord, we want to take that stand and say we believe that we can't be good. Our report card is an F-. minus. But Jesus came so that he could switch places with us and now you accept us because of who he is. And there's someone in this room today that has never taken that step towards surrender and said, yep, I repent. I, I am wrong. I am sinful. But Jesus came and he was right and he was good. And he died for me. And if someone doesn't know that, doesn't understand the next step, so they would take boldness this morning to find someone in this room that they can come alongside with and say, point me to Jesus. I want to know him. And maybe there are those this morning that have, that have taken that step and that have trusted Jesus, but they've never made that public declaration to identify with him before brothers and sisters and to say, I'm with Jesus. It's an obedience issue. Lord, and they would take that step of faith to declare who Jesus was for them and who he is in them. He is your son in whom you are well pleased. May we delight in the one you delight in. May we rejoice in the one you rejoice in. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.